Yep. Yep. Woohoo! And both of my boys have birthdays this week as well. This coming week, both of them do. So, lots of birthdays. Mary Frank. All right. They're not, I don't think they're revealing their ages, Grandma. I don't, <laughs> they're not sharing. All right. Okay. All right. Let's, let's come before the Lord one more time. Heavenly Father, as we prepare to hear your word, God, I pray that the words will be yours, that in spite of the messenger of God, that your, your, your want for this church, your want for this community would be heard clearly. God, I thank you for your, for your word. And I thank you for the, the ability we have to, to study. We have your words at our fingertips all the time, God. I thank you for that. And I thank you for your grace. In your name, amen. Yeah, and praise God for the new roof. Maybe we'll get the whole thing done this year. You ready, Keith? Okay. So, I've known that this message is coming for several weeks, obviously, because I've, I've been preparing for it. But I'll be honest, I do not feel prepared for it. This is the one that... I struggle with, I, I probably struggle with this more than I struggle with anything else in God's Word, to be honest. Um, and these, this series is actually based on uh, a man who gave a series like this at a small conference center in California called Mount Hermon. And I heard about this because there was, it had such an impression on several people. He, he was studying Luke 15 and he preached on Luke 15 for like 10 years. And this was the last time he was speaking on it because he had cancer. And there's something about listening to somebody who knows they're going to die. There's clarity in that. He, he, he didn't mess around. He didn't try to make anybody feel good about anything. He didn't worry about any of that. He wanted everyone to hear it before he died. And those were the last three, the last three that he gave. He had been at this Mount Hermon for like 30 years, and he preached every summer. And these were the last three he gave. And they have had such an impression on me um, because I realize how little I understand grace. I've liked my lifestyle of um, a legalistic sort of set of rules that I keep and I'm happy with, I'm comfortable with. Um, but hopefully... My mind has been changed a little bit, and hopefully yours has too if you have some of those. But I'll be honest, this is a hard one. It, this is the easiest one to fall back into. It's easy to try to earn grace. It's easy to say, I'm the biggest part of grace. When I have very little to do with grace, God being gracious has everything to do with it. I just receive it. And so few of us receive it very well. And so few of us share it with anybody else. We freely received, but freely we don't necessarily give. I, 
I've always tried to earn it. I've always tried to say I need a little bit less grace. I want to be a little bit better than that guy down the street. I need less than he does. But there's nothing I can do to earn it. I've already broken God's law. We learned about God's law in, in Sunday school. And I don't mean to, I'm not making light in this series about God's law. You break God's law, there are consequences. If you do not have grace, there are serious, serious consequences. God cannot be in the same room with your sin without grace being in between. If Jesus is not there, if Jesus is not in your life, sin has huge consequences. And sin has consequences in your life naturally. You sin and bad things can happen. You make mistakes and you usually have to pay for them. But what I'm trying to get across in this series is the attitude that most of us have is that I'm just trying hard because I want to live up to a list of rules rather than I love my Holy Father so much I want to please Him because of what He did for me. We say that. We say it so easily, but no one acts on it. Well, I don't act on it. So um, hopefully this, this can apply to some of you too. So today we're going to look at what we can do practically about this. Grace is hard to understand, but there is a practicality to grace. And I want you to be able to take something from this series because a lack of understanding of grace usually puts a barrier up between you and, and God. There's something missing between you and God because you don't understand what grace is. And it's a free gift. We talk about it all the time. Grace is a free gift. Sounds great. But when you miss it, there's a barrier. And when you tear down that barrier, something pretty amazing happens. Your relationship with God is something that the people around you actually want. Rather than what we see in a lot of Christians where you say, why would I want to be like that? That hypocrite. That person who puts out this mask and then does all the same things that everyone else does. So what is grace? Everybody should have a place for notes today. I did the same thing as last week. There's just questions and there's places for you to put your whatever notes you have. So what is grace? We've talked about it for three weeks. Grace is a part of God. It's one of His attributes. He doesn't turn it on and off. He doesn't decide that this morning is the day He's not gracious with you. He doesn't turn it on and off. It is central to the Gospel. Without it, there's no good news. This is why the early church grew so quickly. I mean, the Holy Spirit was there. There was a lot of factors, but there's good news. It grew. It spread. These guys understood what was going on, and it spread like crazy because of that. <clears throat> and it's why Christianity has sustained itself. Without the good news, there's nothing to sustain. We would have gone away just like a lot of religions have. So, your sin creates separation between you and God. I, I, we all agree on that, hopefully. He made a way to span that separation by sending His Son. His Son lived a perfect life without any sin, something none of us have been able to do. He was crushed, and the sins of all mankind were put on Him. He was then raised from the dead to overcome the grave. He then offers you that power to overcome the grave. He was a sacrifice that made a way for you and I to spend eternity with Him. Without it, there's no way. By living a perfect life, 
we are able to wear his righteousness as our clothes instead of the filthy rags that we have. He didn't have to do this, but he is by nature gracious and merciful, and he wants a relationship with you guys. He created you, and he wants a relationship with you. Didn't have to do it. He seeks you. He's looking for you. He loves you. He isn't sometimes in a bad mood because you blew it yesterday. And with, he knew, he knew I was going to sin today. He knew I was going to sin yesterday. He, knew was, he knows I'm going to sin tomorrow. And he still decided to send his one and only son to die for me. Nothing's going to change that. That's the one thing that's made all the difference. And nothing changes it. He did it anyway. He knew what you were going to do. We don't deserve it, and there's nothing we can do to earn it, but we can receive it. But so many of us reject that. That free gift that's offered to us, we reject. We think we have a better way. We think that by doing well at our list of good deeds, we won't need as much grace as the guy down the street. I found this great quote. I'm going to read it to you. A man talking to God about grace. He says, You desire great things for me, God, and from me, but your expectations are reasonable because you're mindful that I am dust. Magnificent dust made in your image, but as a result, you are patient. You are understanding with me. You know about my struggles. When I purposely rebel and reject your love, your plans, and your will for my life, you graciously and lovingly provide pain, no peace in my heart and ever-increasing consequences to prompt me to come to my senses to return to you. And then when I do, you don't keep your anger or hide your face from me when I come with an honest and humble heart with a broken and contrite spirit, when I find myself far from you or the enemy bombarding me and the evil of this fallen world, I feel in an absolutely impossible situation. Your ears strain to hear my cry for help. And your feet run to meet me in my desperate situation, even when it is one of my own making. The father in Luke 15 runs to meet his son, even though his son was openly rebellious, even though his son was full of sin, even though his son blew it in every way. He was looking down the road hoping to find him, and he ran to meet him. He was looking for him. Grace is free. Under, undeserved, counterintuitive. It's the disposition of the infinite creator of the universe toward me. And it's expressed most clearly in his son. This is, this is awesome news. This is awesome news. This is, this is the news that should spread. This is the news that should get out there. Our legalistic tendencies that turn people out of the church because they come in here with thirst... They come into this church with thirst. And when they find judgment from us who have no place to judge, they run right back out and say, what am I doing in here? They don't thirst for our judgment. They don't need me to judge them. But that's usually what they get, and so they run out the doors. Not just this church, the American church in general. That's how it works. And to think that even in your pain, God's trying to reach you is really 
a transformative principle. We talked about this when we were in Philippians 4, but I want to remind you of it and I challenge you with it. When Philippians 4 says you need to rejoice always, and again I say rejoice, how can you do that through pain? How can you do that through suffering? Well, if you're looking for God and saying, God, what are you doing here? Where are you trying to bring me? What are you trying to teach me? That's transformative. That can make it so you have joy anyway. Say, God, I can see what you're trying to do in my life. You're trying to bring me away from this horrible thing that I'm doing. I need to go this way. That's how you can have joy through pain and suffering. Be looking for God. Today, today we're going to talk about the older brother in the parable of Luke 15. So you can all open there. And I'll just tell you now, not only am I the oldest brother in my family, which I am, I am the older brother. We're going to read about the older brother, and this is who, this is who I've been. This is, who, this is how I've lived my life. Whether I've known it or not, this is how I've been. Through the picture of the older brother, we're going to see the Pharisees, and we're going to see the picture of what religion has done to grace. Religion has taken the good news and turned it into a barrier to people coming to Christ. A very large survey was done like 2012 about Americans who are 29 years and younger, and they were asked to give synonyms, like words, for Christianity. These were the top four answers. Number one was judgmental. Number two was critical. Number three was hypocrisy. And number four was unloving. And you know, how did, we, how did, how did the good news come into those four words? How is it that we're supposed to spread the good news and those are the four words? And you know, I still did the older brother thing when I read that and I said, well, that's, that's just because... And I went right to it's their fault. It's their fault. Because they're, doing, they're living their lives and blah, blah, blah. It isn't on them. It isn't on the lost to make us be loving. They're lost because we're not loving them well enough so that they can be found. So that they have a thirst for this. So... In a lot of ways, we've turned the good news into something that's really un- unpopular. And for some people, it's going to be unpopular. That's okay. P- some people are going to reject the gospel. But that doesn't, give us a, that doesn't give us free reign to do with it what we need to, what we want to. So let me read you a couple of verses um, that we get a little hung up on. All right. It says, Go and teach those who lack wisdom helping them to discern what is right before God. Judge their ways so that they may see Christ clearly, teaching them to follow your great example. I'm sorry, that's, that's from Jeremy's little pamphlet of good legalism. See, those aren't real verses. We think that way, but those aren't real verses. We weren't commanded to judge anyone else. We weren't commanded to show them their, their error in their ways. But... We tend to think that way. We tend to think that that's our job. Loving them is not our job. Letting them know all the bad things they've done is their job, is our job. My job. So let me read you some verses that are real verses. I hope somebody was going to fact check me on that and not just let me get away with that. If I got to the end of that, no one looked at me a little crazy. All right, all right. This one's real. Matthew 5, or Matthew 10, 5 through 10. This is Jesus sending out his disciples. These twelve Jesus sent out with the following instructions. 
Do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. As you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. And then he says, freely you have received, now freely give. How many of us have freely received but we don't freely give? We've received His love, we've received His grace, but we don't treat anybody else with that love or that grace. Luke 6, 37-38. This one, this one, boy. You could, we, I could read this every day and I would, it would still haunt me. Do not judge and you will not be judged. Do not condemn and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, the same measure will be used with you. I don't know about any of you, but I don't want the same measure that I use for all of you, for my family, for everyone around me, to be used against me. I don't like that measure. It doesn't feel very good. Romans 2, 1-3 through Therefore you have no excuse every one of you who passes judgment. For in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge, practice the same things. And we know that judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. But do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things, that you do not, that you save yourself? That you will escape the judgment of God? Sometimes we judge others the worst on the things that we do ourselves. Nobody knows about them, maybe. But we judge people openly, and then we go do exactly what we're judging them about. I, I just want to start with, we don't really have standing to judge. No one in this room's lived righteous life. And so how can you judge anybody else? You are called to uphold everyone in this building, every Christian around you, to a standard. But you aren't called to judge them. You're called to come alongside them and hold them up. Come to them in love when they're doing something wrong and try to help them get out of it. See, there's just a huge difference between those two attitudes. We tend to put people in categories, labeling them, and I'm okay with this set of categories and I am not okay with this set of categories. We do it all the time. Whether, whatever you want to call it. Whether it's different denominations, whether it's Republican and Democrat, whether it's whatever. We've labeled them that way, and, and you know what? If they're lost, good for them. I'm okay with this group. I want them saved. You guys over there, you know, good for you. <laughs> you guys deserve what's coming. Sometimes we think that way because they're sinners. They treat us poorly. They treat each other poorly. It's hard to love each other. All right, so we're going to read through Luke 15 one last time. Um. I'm tired of this old way. I'm tired of the legalistic way. I want a new way. So let's find a new way. Now remember, this is one parable telling three stories. He's telling three stories so that they will get the point, which is why I've read it to you every week I've done this. Because if he's telling it to you three times in the Bible, I better tell it to you as many times as I can because I'm not doing as good a job as Jesus did. He wants you to hear this. This is good news. Only time in the whole Bible that he tells the same story three times different ways to get you to get the point. First, now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathered around to hear Jesus. 
But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes back home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. Then Jesus provides the application right here in verse 7. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to be who do not need to repent. So right off the bat, he's challenging those Pharisees who have those laws, those rules. First of all, he's sitting with all the wrong people. He's sitting with tax collectors and prostitutes after claiming to be the son of God. They are not Pharisees are saying this is not right. This is not how in this culture we live. Story number two, he makes the same point, just in case they were missing it. Or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So in, some, in story number one, we have something of moderate value, a sheep that is lost. Shepherd goes out to find it, finds it, comes back, great celebration. Story number two, lady loses a coin. I was reading this week that this coin is probably part of her dowry. This is part of when she were to be married. This is, this is a very important coin to her, and she lost it. It's worth a lot of money. She searches the whole house. Finds it, calls everybody, says, I, I found it. I found it. This is so amazing. So something of moderate value was lost. But as we move to this, the third story, we see that there's something of infinite value that is lost. Any of you have kids, sons or daughters, know that they have infinite value to you. Most of us would die for our kids. And in this third, par- this third story, two sons are lost. So verse 11, Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me a share of the estate, my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Take me, make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son and he threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. 
Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him, What's going on? Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out, pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I have been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf. My son, the father said, you are always with me. And everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So we have two brothers. We're going to find in a minute that both of these two brothers are equally lost. One is obviously lost, goes out and breaks all the rules. But one of them is privately lost. Even though he's been in all the right places, He's grown up in church. He's grown up around all the right people. He has the view of God that is, this is the set of rules, and I have to live by them. And look, I did. So what are you doing for him? How can you do that for him? I'm the one who keeps all your rules. So let's remember who's sitting around him. Jesus, when he's telling this story. These are the Pharisees. These men would have the majority of the Old Testament memorized if not all of it. They would fast two days a week. They would tie 10% of all they had down to the herbs and spices that they had in their pantry. 10% of everything they had. They're squeaky clean morally. These guys considered themselves set apart. They stand on street corners and, and pray loudly so that everybody would know who they were and how important they were. They were well-schooled, they were powerful, they were usually wealthy. They see Jesus claiming to be the Son of God, but he's sitting with all the wrong people. And they say, I don't buy it. If you're the Son of God, you're not going to love these people. If you're the Son of God, you're not going to be hanging out with these people. What's going on here? So at this point, they're murmuring in the crowd. And this murmuring is not, you know boy, this is, this is boring, or boy, you know, just trying to give everybody a hard time. The murmuring, the murmuring was actually spreading this plan of killing Jesus. While they're doing this, Jesus is trying to save them. Jesus is trying to save them. He knows. Don't, don't think for a second he doesn't know who's going to kill him. He knows these guys are in charge of killing him. He's trying to save them still. It just blows my mind. So Jesus is telling this parable to them. He's trying to get them to hear where they have the wrong view of of God the Father. So we went into depth with the younger brother last week, the younger son. The one thing the younger son has that the older son doesn't is he actually realizes he needs grace. He comes back and is prepared to do whatever it takes to make himself right 
And he starts with his speech, right? And he says, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, I'm going to make it all right. And the father ignores him. He says, come on back with me. Let's get dressed. Let's get cleaned up. We're going to celebrate that you're back. You're part of the family again. I'm so excited that you're here. And that whole town is going to see this happen. And by that, the father's taking his shame. If the elders of that town in this culture had found him first, they could have legally killed him. He had been disowned. If he comes back, they could legally kill him. Instead, the father finds him first and says, you're not going to kill him. You're all going to come celebrate. I'm going to pay for your food. You better get in a good mood because I'm in charge of this. And now he's under my coat. He's got my beautiful robe back on him. He's part of my family. So we, we learned last week, the father even embarrassed himself. He ran. Older men don't run because you don't show your, your legs in public. He didn't care. He puts his robe on him. He's forgiven a kid that should have been beaten. <clears throat> this celebration that he has, don't miss it. The celebration is not for the younger son. The celebration is for the father. Don't miss that. The father's celebrating that his son came back. So as we pick up the story, we get this back and forth between the older brother and the father. There's a huge party going on. The brother's coming home. He hears it. He hears it from a long way off. This is a kind of a ruckusy party. There's dancing. There's cheering going on. Everything is exciting. But instead of getting exciting, he gets kind of anxious. Like, what could possibly be going on? Why would, who could be having a party? So he stays back. He holds back. He asks one of these teenagers who's outside. These teenagers are probably the ones who are too young to go inside the party. So he's asking one of them, what's going on? And they say, you know, your son's back, and so we're having a, or your brother's back, so we're having a party. He holds back. He's, he's acting on now what's in his heart. He's about to show everybody in town and show his father what's really in his heart. He's going to say to his father in a minute, I've slaved for you all these years. I have slaved for you. He views this relationship as a slave to master. You gave me these things to do, I'm doing those things. I've been here the whole time. The older son, he judges this party as wasteful. You already gave him his inheritance. The rest of it's mine, and now you're spending it on a party for him. This is supposed to be my stuff. He already blew it. Why are you spending what's left of mine on this guy, on this kid who is worthless? He's worthless. So he has a broken relationship with his brother, and he has a broken relationship with his father. Probably at this point in the story, the Pharisees have kind of figured out who's playing what role in this story. They're the older brother. Those sinners who are around Jesus, they're the, they're the younger brother. Now we have this stubborn older son refusing to come in. In this culture, it's the responsibility of the older son to greet everyone who comes into a party so that the father can be inside and mingling. He's free within the party. So if he has a kind of a rebellious son, he wouldn't have dealt with it right then. He would have said, have him beaten or tied up or sent away and I'll deal with him later. He would never leave this party because his son's just kind of being ridiculous out there. He's making a fool of himself. So the father instead goes out to him. Again, taking the shame of his son. 
because his son didn't deserve him to come out and find him again. He's taking this son's shame as well. And the younger brother is full of kind of just venom for him at this point. He calls his brother, when he says, he doesn't say my brother, he says, your son, your son, it doesn't have anything to do with me, your son did all these things. Kind of spits in his father's face. He's openly sinning against him. And what does the father do? Father yells at him, right? Father's really angry with him, right? The father's like, come on, what, what's going on with you? How, how many times do I have to teach you the same thing over and over again? Is that what he does? It's not what he does. He greets him with, my son. How much more gentle of a way do you greet somebody with than, than my son? He's coming at him from a place of, please, please get this. Be close to me. Be part of my family. You've seen how I am. Why are you doing this? Come close to me, my son. He's saying to his son, I don't care how terrible you are. I know you're acting out in front of everybody. I don't really care. You're my son, and I love you. And I want you to be close to me anyway. Please come near. Be near me. Be part of my family. So this son who's been in the house the whole time has this broken relationship with his father. The elder son goes right into sort of his legalistic you know, performance rhetoric. He says, look at all I've done. I've never disobeyed, but you never did any of this for me. Me and I and me and I and I did all this. I deserve. It's, he's making it all about him. This is why people like the older son, tend to be bitter and angry. We think God owes us because we listened and did what other people didn't do. How can you bless that person over there? I did all the right things. They've done nothing right. Why is it so easy for them and so hard for me? Anybody ever had that conversation in your head? Happens sometimes. We get resentful. We get, we get mad at God. How can this person over here have cancer? And yet that person who does nothing good lives in that house and has all the right things. This life of the older brother is just as miserable as the one of the younger brother who was sitting with the pigs. He's sitting in the stench. He's sitting in with the horribleness. This life of the older brother is just as miserable. I'm telling you this from experience. And not from experience from five years ago when I was much less mature than I am now. I'm telling you this from experience like from this week. This is hard for me to give up. And it's hard for a lot of people to give up because it takes the me and the I out of the relationship, which is where I want it. I want it to be about me. I want it to be about I. Because I do work hard. I want it to matter. I, I do try to do the right things. I do try to be responsible. But I'm doing it for the wrong reasons. I'm doing it for all the wrong reasons because I think God's just going to bless me if I do those things. So with regard to relationships, the older brother usually feels superior, critical, prejudiced, and judgmental. They focus on what? You didn't do this. You didn't do this. You didn't do this. You didn't do that. You didn't do this. It's all about the letter of the law. When the Scripture says where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's liberty, there's freedom. 
The older son's not experiencing any freedom. Elder brothers often tend to be joyless people, often miserable. They're critical of others and they are critical of themselves and they tend to keep it bottled up. That's kind of in my wheelhouse, anybody who knows me. That's kind of right where I'm at sometimes. I can't meet the standards. So often, anyone who is like this has a complete break with God. How many times have we seen a pastor, an elder, someone who's been in church their whole lives go from seemingly the right direction to a complete break and they are no longer in church and they're no, they no longer have any fruit in their lives? They do that because, God, I can't do these list of rules. I can't do this. The mindset is, I have to do all these things or I'm never going to make it. And so when I can't do it, I break and I run the other way. And we've seen, we've seen this. When God's saying, I know you aren't good enough. I know you aren't good enough. I made another way. You're not good enough. You can't do it. I made another way. Accept my son. I made the other way. So as we close, um, I'm going to get as practical as I can so that hopefully this gets driven home as, as far as what I'm saying. As a Christian, I've got several big commands. If we're looking at a big picture, I've got several big commands, right? Love the Lord, the God, Lord my God with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my strength, and my neighbor as myself. I'm to show everyone Christ's love. People should see Christ in me. I'm part of the family of God. I'm part of the body of God. And I'm supposed to encourage and uplift you with my gifts, whatever they are. That's sort of the big picture of what I should be doing. Here's why a lack of understanding of a grace is a barrier to those. Part of, my, part of the legalistic nature is that I don't tend to have sympathy for those who screw up. Because I have this set of rules that I'm trying to live by. And when they don't meet those rules, and I do, I don't tend to have a lot of sympathy for them. Maybe it's how they fight over stupid things. I, I don't tend to have sympathy for that. And that's... <laughs> Maybe it's because they make bad decisions. Maybe it's the drama that they create. But because I have no grace for them, I miss opportunities to be a peacemaker. I miss opportunities to be merciful. I miss opportunities to show others how, how God really is. These people are then usually lost to me as far as reaching them for the gospel. Once you've treated them that way, you kind of lose them. Your testimony is hurt for them. The other part of this is I set up a list of rules for myself that I try to meet so I'll look better for all of you. And that becomes the primary focus. To have the best family, to have the best whatever. To look like a good Christian to all of you. But since it takes all my strength to do that without God's power, I get frustrated. So I constantly fail and I beat myself up and I'm stuck in my own head all the time. And so again, how many opportunities do you miss when you're stuck in your own head? You miss all of them usually. And when the opportunities do arise, what do you have to say to that person? What's God doing in your life? Well, I don't really know because I've been in my own head all about all the things I've been failing about. So, when you, when you can't accept God's grace, it puts up this big wall between you and what you're supposed to be really doing. The root of this is pride. 
And what I, wanted, I want everybody to take, hopefully, from this series is that pride can destroy you, and it can destroy your relationship with the Father. Think about all He's done for you. He's given you a free gift, and it's grace. Run to Him today, whether you are closer to the openly sinful younger brother, or whether you're the older brother with the private sin life. Both are lost. Both are about themselves. So receive God's grace and then go show it to everyone around you. They won't deserve it. You're not going to find anybody who deserves you to be graceful to them. You know what the point is, though? It doesn't matter. You didn't deserve it. And so we are to act the same way to those around us. When they cut you down, show them grace, and you know what's going to happen. Instead of missing all those opportunities, you're going to create a hundred. Because when somebody cuts you down and you treat them with grace, they're going to say, what is wrong with that person? How can that person deal with me treating them like that? And then, then they treat me well. They're going to want to know more about God. This is, this is the practicality of you can't show grace. It's hard to, it's hard to be the light. So be the light. Show other people grace around you today. They'll want to know what's different. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace. I pray that everyone here has already accepted your grace, God. I pray that everyone here is on track for salvation, God, and being in heaven with you for the the rest of eternity. But God, I pray that we'll remember that the time here is important that you put us here for a reason and there's lost people all around us. And I pray that as we go out, our light will shine so brightly, not because we follow a list of rules, but because we treat people with love and grace when they don't deserve it. I pray that you'll bless each one this week, God, as they go out and, and stay on their minds. God, stay on, their, on these people's minds so that we can change this community. In your name, amen. Thank you, everybody. You're dismissed.